Happy New Year, listeners. This is Paul Rigby from Big Bands and Beyond. And yes, it's a new year, 2024, with some more Marvel's Big Band stuff. This month is the fabulous, amazing, outstanding, brilliant Mr. Bobby Shoe.
this month we've got trumpet royalty and it is the amazing Bobby Shue and I spent a while with him going through his life and the things that he got up to from uh, a young age up to modern times and what he gets up to uh, as a music educator and also his fabulous trumpet playing and his career over many decades. That was Gary Irwin Orchestra with Beautiful Friendship featuring obviously Bobby Shue. It's all about Bobby Shue. And before we get into more of, of him and the interview, uh, we're going to play an early uh, Shoe recording with Woody Herman called Jazz Hoots. <laughs>
the album Woody Herman from the Phillips Recordings. Hey, hey, this is Bob Mincer, saxophonist, composer, arranger, long-term member of the Yellow Jackets, conductor of the WDR Big Band, and you are listening to Paul Rigby's Big Bands and Beyond, over and out. Now, when I met this terrific musician uh, way back in probably 90s, early 90s, I was with a Wigan Hughes Jazz Orchestra and scared to death of everything that faced, faced me with all the marvellous professional musicians that we play with and the experience we had was un incredible. And uh, we were fortunate enough to record an album with him, which we'll talk about later uh, in uh, the interview. But... Since then, knowing Bobby Shue and what he's been up to over many, many years as a jazz educator, uh, helping myself go to America to study, and uh, many others around the world is incredible. But, of course, his integrity as a musician and as a great lead trumpet player and soloist too. So, this is the interview, and uh, it's the Bible, guys. So, please sit back and enjoy... The incredible Mr. Bobby Shue. Hi, Paul. It's Bobby. Bobby Shue here. Hi, Bobby. It's been a while, uh, but it's great and a privilege to have you on the show. Did you did you come from a musical background? As I read, you started on guitar. What made you change to trumpet? Uh, my stepfather, my second stepfather, where I got the name Shue, had a friend who was a guitar player, a lady, a Nashville a country player, and uh, she came back to Albuquerque for visit her mom and so forth, and I guess we went down to her house and she got out her guitar and she played and sang a little bit for us and, and it was impressive and so forth. I was eight years old then and uh, a couple of three days later, uh, they walked into my bedroom and handed me a guitar and a book and a pick. And uh, I had a hell of a difficult time starting on that. Yeah, there was no teacher. The guitar was a full-size Stella with steel strings. So it sliced my fingers up pretty good, and it was about we were about the same height. It was too big. My parents didn't know what they were doing. They they should have bought something more sensible for me at that, at that age. But I my fingers bled for about three or four months trying to play that thing, and then I finally just gave up. A year or so later, during a sort of a house cleaning thing, my stepfather pulled out of a closet an old a trumpet. He had played trumpet. I never even knew that. He had played trumpet for two or three years when he was in elementary school uh, at age 10 or 11 or something like that. And he got the trumpet out and he tried to play on it, you know, and it sounded god-awful terrible. But I was in, I was, I'd never seen an instrument like that before, so I was kind of enthralled by the whole thing. And whenever they left me with a babysitter, I'd go in the closet and get that trumpet out and take a look at it and sniff it and whatever. At the age of 10, I changed from a parochial school to a public school. First day, a lady came around and said, any of you kids want to join the band? And I went, yo. And so I uh, raised my hand, and, uh, and she told me what, what book to get, a beginner's book, a uh, Walter Beeler-like little thing. You know, I don't know, remember what the book's name was. But uh, my stepfather sat with me one night after dinner a couple of days later, and <clears throat> he was going to show me how to play. What he did is he started me to make a, a, a buzzing sound with my lips, you know, uh, pinched tightly together. 
kind of like a B, uh, you know, a kind of sound. And uh, so I did it, and then he handed me the trumpet, and I tried to do that in the trumpet, and it really sounded horrible <laughs> because it sounded like a, a loud B. Anyway, uh, he said, oh, lower, lower your jaw and open that up, and I lowered my jaw and opened up what's now called the aperture, which is to release the air so it can actually go into the cup and into the horn. And immediately I got a nice big fat sound on the trumpet. And I realized, oh, these things are not that difficult to play. you know. So that was the beginning for me. And uh, I, I never went back to the guitar ever after that. I'm Georgina Jackson. And you're listening to Paul Ribby's Big Bands and Beyond. We're delighted to have him on board. It's Mr. Bobby Shue. And all the music you hear this evening, of course, has Bobby Shue in them because he's played with some cracking big bands.
Brad Wilson big band The Serpent and of course Bobby is featured in that one uh, playing a trumpet solo you ain't heard nothing yet so Bobby how did you develop your playing at a young age and what turned you towards jazz and performing live music I had a very easy time with music for who knows what reason we this whole subject about inborn talents and stuff like that it's a question that it's brought up an awful lot, you know, in the world. I think talent, in my definition, uh, is a lack of barriers. Barriers are many. They can be uh, physical. They can be mental. And uh, what I had, where I got it, I don't know. I've thought about that many times uh, to try to analyze and realize but there are two natural gifts that a musician would hope for, and they were are what's called a good ear, which is not perfect pitch because it's a very imperfect world. And uh, scientifically, you can't build any instrument in perfect, in perfectly in tune. It's impossible. That's why we have a tempered scale and things of that sort. But um, having a good relative pitch ear, which means that if you knew how to play you know, God Save the Queen, you could do it in any key. Some of them would offer a little more difficult cross-fingerings and so forth, but you would do it by pitch relationships rather than by perfect pitch. And so I had that. And the other gift is an internal sense of, of rhythm where you don't have to, you can feel a measure go by, you can feel the beat, you can feel rhythms and you don't have to count things on your fingers and stuff like that. And so uh, I had both of those things, and, and plus the fact that I was kind of a precocious kid in math and art and things of that sort, so I could read. My stepfather showed me, me the mechanics of sight reading very quickly, and I grasped it easily, and so I could read immediately all, all of the tunes in the beginning book. And so I had an easy time with that. At 12 years old... I was asked to join a band, a bunch of older kids and some adults were forming a kind of a little jazz band, and I didn't know what that even was. But uh, some, the trombone player, who was a senior in high school, 17 or 18 years old, was a neighbor of mine, and he, he knew he had heard me play, and he knew I could kind of play pretty well. You know, I was first chair in school bands and things like that. So he mentioned me to the leader to, to join the band, and... I went to the rehearsal and we were playing music of like Glenn Miller stuff. You know, it was like, this was like 1953, probably more so. I enjoyed it. I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. And on a break, the baritone and saxophone player in the rhythm section, they started jamming a little, just messing around. And I heard these guys playing and I thought, what in the world are they doing? You know, I went over there to see the, see what the music looked like. And there was no music. And I, I was kind of confused, and so Tony, the bar the baritone player, when he finished his solo, <laughs> I said, "Where's the music? What is it? What are you playing?" You know, and he said, "Oh, we don't use music; we make it up in our heads." And I went, "No, that's is that legal? I mean, wow!" So I said, "Can I try that with you guys?" And he said, "Yeah, get your horn. You can take a solo when Kenny finishes." And I went, "Wow!" So I got my horn and I blew a few notes quietly on it to figure out what key they were playing in. And I just sat there and I listened to the bass, drums, rhythm, uh, chord, chords coming from the piano. I didn't know they were called chords. Uh, but anyway, I did all of this and uh, 
for a few minutes. And then when I came in, I just tried to play notes that fit with the chords that I heard and make, made them rhythmically feel right with the rhythm section. And I closed my eyes because Tony had his eyes closed and I thought that was part of it. So anyway, finally they, somebody had to tap me on the shoulder and stop me because I was so into this. It was like an out-of-body experience. And anyway, the, uh, they top, stopped me and we said, come on, Bobby, we have to rehearse. So anyway, after the rehearsal, the trombone player said to me, God, you must listen to a lot of jazz records to be able to play solos like that. And I said, what's a jazz record? And he said, what? And so he, we went to his house and I went into his uh, bedroom with him and he played uh, two tracks from Dave Brubeck's first album fantasy album, and then uh, two tracks from a Stan Getz album, and two tracks from a J.J. Johnson album, and I had never heard anything like this. The only thing I had ever heard, and this explains a little bit about my origins, is my grandmother and my mom, uh, we lived at my grandmother's house, and they both liked classical music, and they used to play Mario Lanza and the great Caruso opera kind of things. And they'd listen to uh, the New York Philharmonic every Sunday night on a, uh, a radio broadcast. Um, Bell Telephone Hour, it was called. And uh, so I was, you know, just a baby, but I would lay on my in the diapers on, my, on the floor. And listen, I had an uncle that was a real classical music freak. The only thing I ever heard that was close to that is my mom and my grandmother used to play some... Um, uh, you know, dance band albums like uh, mostly Guy Lombardo, Wayne King. But there was one Harry James record in there that I remember. and uh, So I did hear stuff. And I think that's the key to a lot about the talent is from your environment. If you're, provide, if you're provided with an environment where you can hear music, especially quality music uh, around you as you're growing up, it, it kind of like, you know, it's how you learn languages. Uh, if you if your parents spoke Russian, you would learn it. Uh, if they spoke three languages, you would learn all three. Uh, and if they play music, well, you'll learn it to some degree, you know. And uh, anyway, that that's basically how I got into it. And so improvising was just a piece of cake easy for me. I wasn't, I didn't sound like Clifford Brown or anything, but I was playing, you know, and everybody was pretty astonished that I could play solos and I had a really good ear and a good sense of rhythm. And from there, everything else uh, took off. It's quite amazing. He'd never heard of a jazz record. But I want to play now just to, to show you a scope of the different styles that, that Bobby Shue has been involved with. This is with Randy Brecker with the Czechoslovakia National Symphony Orchestra playing a tune called Rumba Elias.
That's from one of the many uh, trumpet summits in Prague, the Mendoza Arrangements, also featured on the Jan Hassan Hall. We're talking to Bobby Shue. So, Bobby, all the great bands and band leaders you've worked with, what were they like? I'm thinking particularly like Buddy Rich, Tommy Dorsey, Willie Herman, etc. But I know there's many more. Can you remember any funny moments that undoubtedly must have happened on tour with them? All the bands and band leaders that I've worked with, that's an interesting uh, question because there's good and bad in that, you know. Of course, uh, one of the... The first name band that I worked on was the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, uh, at that time led by uh, saxophone uh, player Sam Donahue. And Tommy had just passed away a couple of years before. The first noteworthy band that I got it, got into uh, was uh, the NORAD, N-O-R-A-D. Uh, it's uh, North American Air Defense, it stands for. It's a military band. I got drafted into the Army, and I wasn't really like a gun-carrying kind of a person, but I auditioned and got into the NORAD band, and it was full of people who had been on uh, a lot of road bands. Phil Wilson was on trombone, Paul Fontaine, who was I was to replace, a great trumpet player who had been on Woody Herman's band, and, and quite a few other uh, players. After I got out of the service, uh, I went directly right onto the Tommy Dorsey band, and that was really great fun. What we did is, you know, uh, we had uh, the Five Pipers with us. Frank Sinatra Jr. was singing with us. Charlie Shavers was uh, a featured soloist with a band, and he was also my roommate for part of the time when he had uh, a thing called narcolepsy, which is a low blood sugar problem, and he needed to be watched. So they asked me if I would mind rooming with Charlie Shavers. I look back on that today, it's like, wow, can you believe I got the room with Charlie Shavers? Oh, my God, you know. It was really a, a fun band, and uh, while I was on the band for a while, um, we were up in Lake Tahoe, and I got a phone call from Bill Chase to come on Woody Herman's band. And I thought, wow, that's really jumping up, because the Dorsey band was not really a jazz band. I mean, kind of, it was a dance band and a show band, and so forth, but Woody's band was like, you know, smoke and burning, you know, and so I jumped onto that band, and I spent almost a year there. There's some good and bad, you know, <clears throat> Woody could be a difficult person at times. I did a little bit of time with Cy Zentner's band. I I went on to, to after Woody's band, I went to tour with Della Reese, and that was a six, six brass. It was a rhythm section and three trumpets, three trombones. So I was playing lead trumpet for Della Reese for a while. That was really a lot of fun. Della was a sweetheart of a woman to work for. She's just a great singer and very special. But I did that for a while. And then from there, uh, I got called to, uh, I went to on a brief thing for about six weeks with Benny Goodman's band, playing the lead chair and having to do all of Harry James' solos. That was really a challenge. This is Elliot Deutsch from Los Angeles, California, here on Paul Rigby's Big Bands and Beyond radio show to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Well, it's all fascinating stuff, and uh, if you just tuned in, you're listening to the delights of Big Bands and Beyond and the infamous Mr. Bobby Shue. And he's just been talking about Benny Goodman, and uh, with all the band leaders he's worked with, I think this was his worst one. Benny was probably the worst band leader I have ever worked for. I mean, he was an idiot, this guy. <laughs> he, was, he was, even, I remember an interview with his daughter. She said, we never 
could figure out my father, you know. I think this was before they knew the term bipolar. I think that might have been what he had. He was like, he could be really cruel to people in the band, you know. And I did his band twice. I did it later on when he uh, he actually hired Louis Belson's band that I was playing lead on to do a tour with Benny. And, oh, my God, he was screaming at Louis Belson, trying to tell him how to play the drums and everything. It was like... It was horrible, you know, but Benny was what he was. He was a great clarinet player, without a doubt, but just a difficult human being. And other bands that I played on, Terry Gibbs' band was one of my favorites. That was like, I took Al Persino's place on that band, and man, that's, that's all that great writing, Bill Holman and Al Cohn and... Oh, boy, some beautiful music and great players, you know. I also, um, I did some some things with Bob Florence. He was a great writer and a great guy to play with. And then there were, came Toshiko's band, of course, and that was like a turning point, you know. This is Callanau, and you're listening to Paul Rigby, Big Bands and Beyond. All those great band leaders he's worked with and fascinated to know about Benny Goodman and what he was like. Right, of course, I asked him about the Buddy Rich Orchestra too. I would have to say Buddy Rich's band, going back, stepping back previous, when I went on Buddy Rich's band, it was when, when the band was actually formed in 1966. And uh, I went on as the jazz trumpet player the first day of rehearsal. And the guy that was uh, playing lead trumpet, I won't mention his name because he's a known person, but he had, he had a tendency to rush and his chops weren't really up to the full skinny as a lead player yet, so he was uh, problematic. We played about three tunes, and Buddy had a fit and screamed, why can't he get a lead player? And and the baritone player, Steve Furlow, mentioned, why don't you try Bobby on lead? And I went, oh, my God, no. Anyway, I went over to the lead book, and I played one chart called Step Right Up by Oliver Nelson, and it was a medium swing shuffle kind of thing, and... Uh, incidentally, I had started messing around with drums when I was 14 years old. I didn't own a set of drums, but I owned sticks and brushes. I used to bang on cord- cardboard boxes and tables and chairs and the backs of record albums and stuff. But I had that internal rhythm thing, and so Buddy could hear that in me immediately. And so he said, you're the lead player, you know, and I thought, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? And I told him, I said, I don't really think I have the chops for that. And he says, don't give me that crybaby crap. Go home and get your chops together. You come in here tomorrow, you're the lead player. You got it? And I went, oh, 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 help. You know, but anyway, I went home and got out my lead mouthpiece and practiced on it that night. And I came in the next day, and although I, I got a double hernia and everything else and cut my chops all up, and I beat myself to half to death, but I was loving learning to play lead trumpet and with Buddy, which was one of the highlights of my life, you know, uh, amazing. Then back forward again to Toshiko's band, her writing was so challenging in a different way that, you know, she was writing uh, historical kind of Japanese things, chants and whatever. I mean, it was, it was swing music, but it was different. And the lead trumpet book was probably the most difficult lead trumpet book ever written. <laughs> By, by my standards, anyway, I don't know anybody that wrote harder than that. Maybe a couple of people, but it was very di- challenging and so forth. But I loved that I was on that band from the first, from the beginning until 
she and Lou moved to New York. So I, I did about eight, I guess, eight years or something on that band. What an amazing insight to some of the uh, band leaders he's worked with. And I'm sure there's plenty more stories where that came from. Anyway, we're going to uh, have a listen to some of the Della Reese stuff that, that Bobby was uh, playing. This is I'm Beginning to See the Light. <laughs> Flies, but now that the stars are in your eyes, I'm beginning to see the light. I never went in for afterglow, a candlelight shining on a mistletoe. But now when you turn the light down low, I'm beginning to see the light. Used to ramble through the park, shadow boxing in the dark. You came and caused a spark that's a for a long fire now. I never made love by the lantern shine. I never saw rainbows in my wine. But now that your lips are burning mine, I'm beginning to see the light. If you just join us, this is probably his big bands and beyond monthly show and a special guest with us, the unmistakable Bobby Shue. And he's talking about his life and the things he's been involved with. And, of course, it goes without saying, one of his special moments, as he mentioned, was with Buddy Rich. And uh, being sort of forced and bullied into playing lead, uh, one of the first numbers he played was Step Right Up, and here it is.
From Buddy Rich's swinging new big band album back in 1966. Big Bands and Beyond. It's not just any big band show. It's Paul Rigby's show. You're with me, Paul Rigby, and you listen to Big Bands and Beyond. Don't forget you can email the show, bigbandsandbeyond20 at gmail.com, or add yourself to the Facebook group with this ever-widening participation of course, big bands and beyond. And special guest, trumpet player, Mr. Bobby Shue. Also, if you know of a date of a big band or you want to be featured on the show, please, please, please do get in touch. We want to spread the big band word worldwide on the Wibbly Wobbly. So, I also asked him about his writing and his music that he uh, obviously toured with uh, and what he used in a lot of the youth bands that he, he featured on throughout the UK when he came over here. And obviously throughout the United States of America. So, Bobby, as you've grown in uh, your playing and the people you play with and stuff, I guess it's fun as well to write and arrange. So, how's it compare to playing and what makes a good arrangement? Writing and, and arranging music uh, is something that I don't consider myself to be top-notch at. I, I have studied it a little bit. I did my first arrangement on Blueberry Hill, when I was 14 years old, because a trumpet player in this little band that I was playing with used to be a pretty good singer, and he would do Fats Domino tunes and Little Richard tunes and so forth. And and so when he would go out to sing, we didn't have an arrangement. We'd try to jam. So I thought, well, I think I can write up some parts for that. So I sat in English class in school <laughs> and wrote out parts, and I had to find out about transposing the E-flat to, to E-flat for the alto saxophones and writing learning bass clef for the trombones and it was quite a challenge but I wasn't I really never I can't say I never studied because I have certainly looked at a lot of arranging I've started being a professional copy music copyist about 14 years old as well because I had to write out the parts so I learned to do that and then I for a lot of years I copied for Bill Holman and I copied a lot of stuff in in LA some Shorty Rogers things, and and every time I uh, copied, no matter who it was, uh, whether it was for TV, a movie, soundtrack, or something, I always studied people's scores, you know? At one point, I, I was touring with uh, Barbara Streisand, and Peter Matz was the conductor, a great, really a great arranger and composer. I asked him to give me some lessons, and he said, I don't teach, but he said, what you can do is, uh, Barbara's scores are in a case over there, and if you want to select some tunes that you like the arrangement of and you can go over and pull the scores out and take them home with you and study them a bit. And so I did that for a while and I photocopied some pages and I started learning some things about about string writing a little bit and voicings and ranges and stuff. I bought some books about it, you know. Uh, there's a, quite a number of really good books out there in the market now about how to write for different kinds of things. You know, Henry Mancini books, Henry Nestigal books, Things of that sort. Hi, I'm Bobby Shu. You're listening to Paul Rigby's Big Band and Beyond. Thank you very much. Enjoy. It's interesting, I didn't have any formal study about arranging, and uh, they just picked it up by his own intuition and the bands that he's in are looking at other scores, which is great. But he also talks about the inroads to 
soloing and the infamous improvisation. I know it's a scary word, but we all have that fear. The thing about writing is it ties in with improvisation in in a way, for me at least, uh, in that when you're writing, you're improvising, but you're doing it slowly. <laughs> you have time to erase and go back and revoice something or or stop and try it and maybe change it. But when you're actually playing, it's spontaneous. But I do like to write and arrange a little bit. I do compose some things. My tunes are kind of simple because I'm, I don't think in terms of 12-tone row and all kind of avant-garde things. I have a simple romantic ear, and that's what I hear. So a lot of my tunes are simple little love songs, like the tunes, the two tunes I wrote for Blue Mitchell, Blue and Can't Stop the Crying, I wrote. I started writing some tunes when I was, I think, about 17 or 18 years old, maybe, little blues tunes and whatever. Some of them have done very well, actually. You know, I enjoyed writing an album of strings of, of Brazilian music uh, just some years back. Oh, that was 18, 18 years ago or so. But I enjoyed writing that with string section and all that. It was really fun. It turned out really nice. And, but I'm not really like a Stravinsky type of a writer or anything like that. I What I really like to do is play. That's the epitome of being a musician for me is jazz playing, spontaneous playing. Well, talking about your writing, Blue is such the perfect ballad, beautiful tune. And I think the album in question is Salsa Calente. And again, another brilliant album. When I talked to Bobby a few weeks ago, I mentioned an album that I had on cassette that somebody gave me, and I lost it. And I must have worn it out, really, because I knew everything inside and out. But it was a recording of him with the Nelson Columbic Band, directed by Alan Downey and on lead Derek Watkins. Who else other than Bobby would have had this recording? Of course, I was over the moon when he said, I'll send it to you. So there'll be more great music, great chat and wonderful anecdotes from Bobby in part two. We've also got the gig list. No pandemic playlist this week, I'm afraid, but keep them rolling in, of course. I always like the charts that you lot uh, chuck at me, uh, and you can obviously email me or get me on the Facebook. You're listening. Yeah, like all the time I'm listening. To the station that swings. The station really swings me. Right, now this next tune to finish off the first set should be in everybody's big bum pad. It's a great tune that Bobby wrote, arranged by Gordon Brisker, dedicated to Blue Mitchell, hence the title Blue.
To Big Bands and Beyond. This is Paul Rigby, and we're talking to Bobby Shue as our special guest this month. All the tunes tonight that you hear are all shoe based, whether he's playing it or he's written it, but it's all good stuff. That track was Herbie Hancock's Chameleon, arranged for the Louis Belson Big Band, which incidentally he played, I think, of a understood uh, Bobby rightly, 33 years on and off. And uh, that was from the Explosion album back in 1975 featuring Bobby on a muted trumpet. So we're going to continue with the interview and uh, this is what else he had to say. I must thank you before we go on on behalf of all the students you have supported over the years worldwide and uh, they see you as a royalty and an ambassador to instrumentalists including you helped me get to the University of North Texas and study with the great uh, Ed Self, which was quite amazing. So I just wondered how important that has been for you alongside you and your career. Being a teacher, a so-called teacher, and I put quotes around that, I like to be able to try to help people. I see so much confusion. The world of music pedagogy has been very confused for years, hundreds, hundreds of years. And very few of the teachers that I come in contact with have ever studied things like the real anatomy of the human body and the neuromuscular systems and how things work. Whether you're a drummer or a piano player or a guitar or a trumpet, sax, it doesn't matter. You're using your body, and it, I think it behooves us all to, to at least understand how muscles work and how the neuro, neurons in your brain are help pro, set up programs. And, and it's called kinesthesia. Some people call it uh, muscle memory, but it's neuromuscular because the muscles, that's like a, a, a piece of flesh that gets a message from a neuron in the brain. And when you do repetitions and things like that, you're setting up patterns in the brain that tell the muscle how to function. And if you set up bad, <laughs> bad information, then you get bad habits and then you have chop problems or respiratory problems or your hands don't work on the drums properly or your feet or doesn't matter. You know, I mean, all the, the whole body is affected by the human brain and the way it sets up uh, patterns 
I like being able to help people play better, you know, because I get tired of seeing kids struggling and suffering and, you know, the frustrations and the disappointments and, and all the things that people normally go through when they're trying to learn to play. It's a, it's a travesty to see all of that, you know, but I have been, I gave my first lesson when I was 14 years old to a nine-year-old kid that lived about a block and a half down the street from me. And, and his mother knew that I could play well for a 14-year-old kid. And so she asked me to give little Joey a lesson. <laughs> I said, well, I, I don't know how to teach. I never had a lesson myself. And that's actually true. I, yeah, I sat with my a band director one time and asked him if he could help show me how to do some double tonguing or something, but he was terrible, and he, I didn't really learn anything other than to stay away from him for the most part, you know. I sat with little Joey, and what I mostly did is, I, when I started to teach him to play the scale on the first time we got together, it bored him, so the next lesson told him, you know, that on the, that little scale of the first five notes of that scale, there's a guy by the name of Louis Armstrong. And I mentioned that because when I walked into his house to give him a lesson, there was a Louis Armstrong LP on the coffee table. And I asked him, I said, is that yours? He well, it's my dad's. And I said, do you ever listen to it? And No. And I said, well, that guy uses the first five notes of the uh, scale and he plays a great song. And it goes something like this. Anyway, Saints go marching in. The kid loved that. I taught him that and how to swing it a little bit and wiggle his backside, <laughs> and he did. I had a realization. It took me years before I had the full realization, but teach music and then bring the trumpet skills up to the level of the music. Don't just make kids play scales and scales and stuff that's, like, boring. So that was 66 years ago that I gave the first lesson. I didn't teach a lot, but I was when I was in college, quite a few, about a dozen or so little beginners. And that was always interesting to teach at the beginning level. Uh, I do some beginners now. I mean, you've got a few. And what's good about that is that I teach really fundamental stuff about the body, how it works, you know, how to warm up, how to breathe, how to control, how to produce sound. I teach acoustical physics, but I do it in a C-spot run simplistic way that a 10-year-old kid can understand it. And it's really cool to, to start a kid on the right materials. There's an old thing about somebody said to me one time, Bobby, you're lucky. And I'm thinking, lucky? What do you mean lucky, you know? I mean, and then I remember a... a there was an, a, a bit of an, a little writing, uh, you might call it a bit of an axiom of sort, uh, that has the word L-U, uh, luck written L-U-C-K, and it stands for laboring under correct knowledge. <laughs> I thought, oh boy, that's good. You know, I think uh, the idea is, you know, there's this thing, the outliers and all that 10,000 hours that they think people need for to learn to play. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think 10,000 hours of wrong habits. I mean, true. No wonder it takes 10,000 hours. I think in, when when we start people properly, they learn faster. I just like teaching. That's all I can say to you is about that is I've tried to help a lot of people. I've got, you know, people, they say, how many students do you have? I have no idea. Thousands. Right now I'm involved in seven different universities in the United States 
doing master classes and occasional private lessons with some of those kids. I'm also involved with a, a conservatory in Munich, Germany uh, for master classes and one in Lima, Peru for master classes. And I just got contacted, I get contacted frequently by other universities, schools and want me to do at least one or two master classes. It's flattering. I'm, there's only so many hours in the day and I'm like, whew, tired at the end of the day. I'm just, right now, I have a guy who's a classical principal trumpet player in a, in a symphony orchestra who is, uh, had some chop problems from weight loss. And when you lose a lot of weight in a hurry, you also lose your chops with it because the brain's programmed to play with a different set of muscles. I do a lot of medical stuff. You know, I've had 28 different people with Bell's palsy come to me. Occasionally people with focal dystonia, which are neurological breakdowns in the facial muscles that surround the embouchure and so forth. And, And even one called tetani, which is really one of the most severe ones ever. I've had a couple of people with that. But I do a lot of uh, studying of medical books and anatomy and neurology, neuroscience, and so forth. And I'm not really a, you know, I have a doctorate degree, but it's useless. It's in music. It has no value at all to me. But if I were to relive my life, I would concentrate a lot more on medical terms and study. And, you know, I did study biology in school and all of that. So I had a vague idea, but I really got deeper into all of this um, uh, some years back. But I love to teach, and so uh, I'm, I have a lot of very successful students. The study of anatomy and the muscles around the face, etc., that you mentioned, it's quite amazing because you never really think about that. And, uh, of course, it, it, it would be detrimental if they're not functioning properly and how to repair. You are the doctor, Mr. Bob. Right, I think uh, we need to get some music on. But he's going to tell you all about his shoehorn. And this is once again a recording from the Nelson Collin big band I mentioned earlier. He's playing a piece called Parking Lot Blues. Interesting thing has happened in these last few years. Some of you are already familiar with it, but I happened to be on the road one time uh, up in the state of Oregon in the northwest part of the United States, and I met a young man by the name of Dave Monette who uh, has this uh, incredible wit and uh, also this incredible craftsmanship when it comes to uh, designing and building uh, brass instruments. And so we happened to be uh, talking, and I had just recorded a wonderful album in uh, Stockholm with another fine trumpet player. So uh, we were sitting at a party one night, and I happened to ask uh, this guy, Dave Monette, if he might be able to build a trumpet for me that would allow me to play both trumpet parts. This is the shoehorn. Uh, so anyway, we're going to uh, see if I can deal with this thing a little bit. It's only good for one tune a night, that's all. It's a, a very temperamental little character. It has a personality uh, of its own, and then I put my personality into there, and, and uh, we fight it out. So you're going to hear two different personalities as we play with this thing, and if just please... Uh, be kind to me and and realize that the one that always sounds just a little bit better is the real me and we want to do (laughs) 
We want to do for you a, a composition by ba- the great bass player Ray Brown. This was uh, this little tune uh, you might find uh, curious. It was inspired by a Barney Kessel guitar clinic a few years ago, whereby uh, some young uh, high school guitar player raised his hand and said, "Mr. Kessel, what's the single most difficult thing about being a professional musician?" And uh, he stopped and uh, thought for a moment, and then he said trying to find a parking place. <laughs> right? They know. I mean, the gig is nothing if you just can't park. So anyway, we're going to do this tune that was written by Ray Brown, inspired by that story. This is called The Parking Lot Blues.
Bands are beyond the you're listening to the magic of Bobby Shoe. He's with us talking about his life as a musician. But next up, when he spent time with the Wigan Jazz Orchestra, which I was privileged to be part of the gang on this particular album that he recorded with us called Aim for the Heart. The track we're gonna play for you now is Stevie's Wonder. <laughs>
We were really honoured to perform with you on that album. So as a student, I was very nervous, but I remember the charts were quite brilliant and difficult too. You must have had faith in the young players to pick these particular arrangements for us to play, but again, inspiring the players, you must have had the faith. Wigan Youth Jazz Orchestra, that was something I really... Well, I loved that bunch, you know, and I have to throw out a huge big thanks to Ian Darrington and also to Ernie Garside, who was my manager over there in the UK for almost 25 years uh, of concert touring over there. I did so many years of that. And uh, Paul Davis, who had a big band in the Birmingham area, was one of the first people to uh, uh, inquire about having me over as a guest artist with his band. He contacted Ernie, and then Ernie set that all up. And I came over and and did uh, some concerts with Paul's band. But anyway, Paul is a, uh, was a great trumpet player himself, toured as the lead player for Shirley Bassey and all that for years, and is a, one of my dearest friends. I mean, he feels like a brother to me, you know. That I, I owe Ian for connecting with me, bringing me over for the Wigan Jazz Festival and so forth and playing with his band. And from there I met other ones, you know, the Midland Youth with John Reddick. I did numerous other bands um, all through the country, everywhere, Scotland and holy cow. I mean, when I stop and think of the numbers of youth bands that I played with in England and uh, Nigel uh, as well, you know. Boy, and some, some of the numbers of beautiful kids that, it came out of some of those bands. I mean, I, I, I mean, wow. I, I think of when they were little tiny kids, and then they become like a guy like Martin Williams, who's like multi instrumentalist and uh, one of the most amazing musicians I've ever met in my life. He can play anything and well and write too. He wrote a chart for me on Dawood, the Clifford Brown tune, when I think he was about nineteen or twenty years old or something. It's really a top-notch chart. Uh, and meeting you, too, you were, I think, with the Northern, uh, uh, was it, Ben? And I remember you did play with the, with the Ian's band, you know. I remember you when you were just a little kid. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, uh, I have such fond memories. And that uh, Aim for the Heart album that we did with, uh, with the Wigan Youth Jazz Orchestra is, is a very good, very popular album. I, it's, I don't know if it's even still in print, but I have a few copies of it here. It was great fun, though. You playing with the big bands? Uh, yeah, I think you were over one at least once a year. It seemed to be, and you managed to to go the breadth of the UK. A lot of musicians have great fond memories of it. So, with all the musicians and your experience you've had, what would you say your top favourite three moments would be? I know it'll be a tricky one. But I've thrown down the gauntlet. My top three favorite moments. Oh boy, I, I don't know if I could even answer that. I would say getting the phone call to join Horace Silver's group would stand out because I always wanted to play with Horace Silver. And when he called me, I was up in the state of Oregon doing some jazz clubs and staying at a drummer's house, and the phone rang. And the drummer almost freaked out when he realized it was Horace Silver on the phone. But he handed me the phone, and Horace hired me to take Tom Harrell's place in the band. I was thrilled out of my mind, as I'm sure you could understand. That's a dream come true for me to, to be able to play with Horace. There were some stressful moments here and there with you know, Horace, because he's a very unusual leader and has some very strange considerations about certain things. But 
I learned so much from being on that band, and I enjoyed their guys in the band were amazing. Two saxophones. We had uh, Ralph Moore and Eddie Harris at the same time. Did a couple of albums with Horace. Really, some really wonderful things. Didn't lost a lot of money. Didn't he doesn't pay worth a damn, you know? So it was uh, that. As other favorite moments, I would say I had some moments with Buddy Rich's band when I it brought tears to my eyes. It was so band was so good. And we were playing a club in San Francisco one time, and I and that band was just so tight and swinging so hard that I it brought tears to my eyes, and I had tears actually running down my cheeks. I thought this is the happiest moment I've ever had in my life, you know. Just and that's one thing about music is that when it's such a spiritual thing, you know, inside of people that and a lot of people don't realize if you go back in civilization far enough, you realize that music is an ancient form of prayer and chanting, you know. That's why it works so well in therapy with people who have had strokes and things like that. It taps into deep parts of the hu- of human spirit and the brain, even you know that you can't access any other way, not through talking or golf clubs or you know. Music has a amazing impact on on humanity, but that's the whole thing: is that when you get that kind of a joy, that's very high spiritual level. And uh, let's see if I can come up with a third one. I don't know. I, I I did an album many years ago with Bill Mays, a duo album called Telepathy. It's actually been been reissued on a label in Spain, uh, you know. But we went into an into a studio, no rehearsal, no discussion. We just recorded duo pieces, piano and Bobby, and we improvised everything. We didn't even talk about tempos. I said, Bill, like, what do you want to, how do you want to do it? Or he'd ask me, how do you want to do it? I say, I don't know. Let's just start and let's see where we go. And so the whole album is absolutely spontaneously improvised. That was very, that's, I, I would say that's a third number three on your list. Thanks for sharing those with us, Bobby. Some quite unique moments there. Let's play some music. Here's a Frank Mantooth arrangement featuring Bobby again with the great BBC radio big band with Mean to Me. <laughs>
Right, it's quickly time. So, pens and paper usually at the ready. The 9th to the 6th of Feb, 9th of Jan to the 6th of Feb, the Ronnie Scott's Jazz Orchestra, which will be quite a good one to start the new year. At Ronnie Scott's, uh, do check for details online. Other gig is Sunday the 4th of Feb, Andy Powell's the marvellous uh, vocalist featured with the New Lights Big Band over at Stockport Plaza. It's usually quite a packed house and good fun too. Uh, that's Sunday afternoon at 2pm on the 4th of Feb. Tickets are £15, concessions £14. Telephone number 0161-477-779. Regeneration Big Band are at Astley Community Cup and Nigel Ashworth is coming along to have a chat with me fingers crossed before that gig and he can tell you more about it that's the 14th of Feb at the Astley Community Club 18th of February which is a Sunday the Hoot and Nanny's Big Band are on the Sale Con Club at 2.30pm £7 and concessions £5 remember if you want to get a hold of us you can get us on the Wibbly Wobbly web um, on Facebook of the same name and if you want to email me about anything to do with big bands and gigs and stuff like that do get in touch the email is bigbandsandbeyond20 at gmail.com we're here with Bobby Shoe and I asked him what is his ideal big band my ideal big band I don't know good players playing good charts not trying to impress people with the music just playing stuff that it is challenging delightful to play brings about joy being together and working as a team to make a good band that would be it the rhythm section has to be right. And, you know, I mean, there's so many different concepts of drummers, you know. I mean, Buddy Rich doesn't sound like Mel Lewis, and, and Mel Lewis doesn't sound like Art Blakey, and Art Blakey doesn't sound like Philly Joe. There's so many good ones, you know. And they're all different. They all have a different feel. But you have to get the bass player to match the drummer. And if those two guys have different concepts of time feel, it's going to be... Kind of a pain in the backside on the bandstand. And if you had to sum up, Bobby, your amazing musical career in just one sentence, what would that be? I would say, am I tired? I hope you're laughing at that. But I've been very fortunate. It goes back to that kid that says I've been very lucky. The one thing that goes with luck is that luck always favors the well-prepared person. That's something that Sammy Nestico said. Hello, this is Michael Abdenny, multi-Grammy-nominated arranger, producer, and for 11 years, the musical director of the wonderful WDR radio big band of Cologne, Germany. You are listening to Paul Ridley's Big Band and Beyond Radio Show. Hope to see you all soon. A lot of the whole thing about what you do as a musician is being humble and being honest about your weaknesses and using the practice room properly to get Get your butt in there and don't just play your favorite things and pat yourself on the back, but get in there and work with the problems that you have and deal with those things honestly. And don't expect things to be miraculous and go away in one day or 15 minutes or takes a while to overcome things. For me, one of the things I work on these days is keys. In the Western scale, we have 12 tones. If you're, you know, in Arabia, there are 17 you know, but a lot of times, many musicians learn to play in three keys, and then they, if it goes a half step either direction, they're in trouble. When you start working with singers, you boy, now you're gonna invariably singers are gonna be in a key that you can't play. You know, I had the good fortune when I was a kid. I played with some country and western bands, 
they play an open guitar string keys. You know, there's an old <laughs> funny joke. It's like attributed to Miles Davis. And somebody says, well, hey, Miles, now, like when the piano is in E flat, where does that put the trumpet? Uh, it transposes to F. Oh, and when the piano's in B flat, where does that put the trumpet? In C. And when the piano's in A, where does that put the trumpet? Right back in the case. Laugh it up, folks. <laughs> I've been lucky to have been able to play with some of the greatest musicians on the planet. I'm looking back at and just smiling and pinching myself. It's just been wonderful. Paul, thank you so much for having me on your radio show. This is wonderful that you're doing this, man. And it's nice to see that you're all grown up now and got a job, a real job. And to everybody who might listen in on this, I'm sorry I'm not going to get back to the UK again. Doctor's orders, that's enough traveling for now. But I have very fond memories of all the wonderful times I spent in that country. And I love you all. Thank you very much. Well, what can I say? Bobby is the epitome of all jazz music. And he encompasses such the quality, a fabulous musician and a, a wonderful spirited guy and been a pleasure and, a, and an honour to have him appear on this special. I hope you've enjoyed the intriguing insights of this month's show. I thought it'd be fitting to finish with a Buddy Rich number where it all began. This is Bobby with a classic trumpet solo in Big Swing Face. See you in a month's time. Mm-hmm.